As a kid, I remember hearing this phrase, yield not to temptation. And I'm going to confess, I had no idea what that meant, obviously, because when I saw the opportunity, it was green light go all the way. I mean, I was all in. I struggled with temptation as a kid, and one of the ways I struggled with it was at school, specifically during tests. And I remember sitting there with a friend named John, and he and I both didn't study, and we got this bright idea, write the answers on your hand, write the formulas on your hand. And so we're there taking the test together, and needless to say, my teacher was a little bit brighter than I was expecting, and she spotted it. And she told us, she said, guys, I'm going to offer you the gift of grace. And I thought to myself, that's, that's wonderful. I like the gift of grace. I want that. I think that must have been the name of the lady who was running detention. <laughs> because that's what we got. We got, we got detention. And it occurred to me at that moment as that was happening that is it possible that what one calls grace may differ from what another person calls grace? I mean, sometimes... I might think this is grace, but then in another situation, I might even change my perspective or what you think is grace may not be exactly what I think is grace. And I think that's one reason why this series that we're doing, The Power of Grace, is so valuable. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand and wrap our head around a concept that's really easy to say, but that has some deep meaning to it that maybe we don't always kind of flesh out. So this is the third lesson of the series. Today we're going to be in the book of Romans. You're welcome to turn there if you like, the book of Romans. Lesson number one was about Jesus and how Jesus from him, we see grace upon grace poured out. And then last week we talked about grace applied to our lives and to the lives of others as our grace pours out towards other people and towards the Lord. But what I want to do today is I want to unbox the gift of grace I want to ask the question, what do we mean when we say the word grace? Because after all, it's a pretty common word in the English language. I mean, it comes up all the time. For example, maybe you've at different times in your life needed a little help with your bills. And so you made a phone call and you said, is there any way I could get a grace period? And when we do that, there are some assumptions that we make as we're making that phone call. One of the assumptions we make is this, grace is dependent upon what the, the individual says. Grace may look different in one circumstance than another. So if I call MasterCard and ask for a grace period, it may be based on me making that payment in three days. But if I call Visa and ask for a grace period, that may have to do more with taking a penalty. Because grace typically has different conditions based on who we're receiving the grace from. Or maybe we could talk about good graces. Have you ever been in good graces with someone and had the opportunity to experience their good graces? But I know this, I know good graces with my boss looks very differently than good graces with my mom. Good graces with my boss may be based on performance, where good graces with my mom may be based on me not talking back. 
And so as we see, when we speak of the word grace, we always assume conditions and expectations. And those expectations and conditions are always defined by the party offering it. When we speak of grace, we always assume conditions and expectations, and those conditions and expectations are based on the individual or individuals offering it. And this is what I learned when I was cheating on my test. Because when I went home, when I went home, I got a very different punishment than John. John was shown grace by his parents who talked to him. They said, we're going to show you grace, and they talked to him. My parents made me meet with the Board of Education. And they told me it was grace, and I, I believe them. But the point of it is that grace is always defined by the party offering it. So when we talk about God's grace, then, we have to ask the question, how does God define it? Because when I think of God's grace, perhaps I think of God and His grace is based on His niceness. So maybe God just wants to hand me these get-out-of-jail-free cards based on the niceness that he has to offer. Or perhaps maybe I view God's grace based on my appeasing of him. If I can appease him, if I can make him happy, then he'll overflow grace towards me. But here's the thing. God's grace is not based on my feelings about him, but on the truth about him. So no matter how I feel... I have to understand him. In fact, understanding God's grace requires us to understand something about God. If you want to understand the grace of God, you have to understand something about him. Which brings us to the book of Romans. Because in the book of Romans, God is going to make an argument for what he is like in his nature and his character as written through the Apostle Paul. And here we're going to understand three truths about God, three truths found in the book of Romans. So let's start with the first truth. Truth number one is this. Unlike humans, God is always right. He is always right. Now, there's lots of places in the book of Romans that talks about this. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about God's qualities and his character. But what I want us to look at is in Romans chapter 3. Because in Romans 3, it says that God is always true no matter what. And he is always right. This we are speaking of is his character. God's character is righteous. Because everything God does is right. Always. But there's a problem, and the problem is this, that we aren't. We aren't. If you look in chapter 3, verse 10, here's what it says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one do, does good, not even one. Their throats the open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before them. So here's what Romans is saying. While God is always righteous, humans are not. 
They are not. This brings us to truth number two. Because God is always righteous, his judgments must be righteous as well. This is problematic for unrighteous humans. In other words, God always does the right thing. And for God to do the right thing, he must then respond to humans who don't do the right thing. You see, God is a force of nature to be reckoned with. He is. He's like gravity. And for gravity not to have a pull to it, it is not gravity. Or a ghost pepper. If I go to eat a ghost pepper and it doesn't burn me, then it ceases to be a ghost pepper. God is a force of nature. And to interact with him is to have a response. And so when his creation comes to him and says, not interested, or I have my own way or my own plan, then it's contradicting who God is. And God must respond to that for him to be God. And so God, in his righteousness, must judge us. That's what Scripture teaches. Now, it says it different ways throughout the Bible, but I want you just to see a passage of Scripture that teaches it. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says this, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. His righteous judgment says God is right. Not only is God right in his character, but God is right in his judgment. When human beings reject God, it is right for him to respond with judgment. And guys, that's problematic for humans. There's a problem there. So we see truth number one, unlike humans, God is always righteous. And truth number two, because God is always righteous, his judgments must be righteous as well. And this is problematic for unrighteous humans. So what's the answer? Truth number three. The gospel is God's righteous answer to judgment. To God's righteous judgment towards unrighteous humans. I want to say it again. The gospel is God's righteous answer to God's righteous judgment towards unrighteous humans. God is always right and we are not. And so God is forced to respond with righteous judgment. But that would condemn us all. We would have no hope. And so God responds in righteous love towards us with the righteous gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Romans says in chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. What I'm saying is this, God always does the right thing. He always does the right thing. He is right in his character, he is right in his judgment, and he is right in his solution to our problem. Not only does he do the right thing whenever he's forced to deal with our sin, but he comes up with a solution that shows how good he is and how loving he is. And that solution is Jesus Christ. That solution is Jesus Christ. 
So when we talk about God's gift of grace, it's not based on niceness or my impression of God's niceness, like God is just nice and he just gives out the get-out-of-jail-free cards as he wants to because he's nice. No, that's not what it is. And it's not that God is, is but his, his grace is based on appeasement because I feel guilty or I feel shame and God needs that to, you know, he needs my guilt so that he can deal with me. That's not what it is. What it is is this. God's gift of grace is based on his righteousness and on his sacrifice. And we see that in the life of Jesus who lived a righteous life and didn't sin and died for our sins. That's God's gift. And if we were to unbox it, here's what we would see inside. We would see nothing but Jesus, Jesus pouring out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's the gift of God's grace. God's gift is an amazing gift. But just as I said in the passage from John chapter 1, Jesus pours out grace upon grace. What's exciting about this gift is this, that inside this gift are many gifts. In fact, many, many gifts. Many, many gifts. Lots of gifts. And when I say many is in a lot, I mean a lot of gifts come from this. And when I say many as in small, in all reality, these gifts are huge that God wants to give us. And Romans is going to tell us about three very specific gifts that God wants to give us in Romans chapter 3. Look at this in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's in Romans chapter 3. Now, when I say these words, propitiation and redemption and justification, it probably hits you like it hits me. Vocabulary. And I didn't study a lot in school, so it's hard for me to catch that, right? But here's what God's trying to do. He's trying to tell us that you have no idea how complex and rich the grace of God truly is. The first thing he says is justification. Jesus gives us justification. What does that mean? It means he declares us righteous. He declares us righteous. It's the idea of a judge. You're standing before a judge and you don't deserve to be there. Remember how we said that humans are unrighteous and God is righteous and God in his righteousness should come and destroy us. But because of Jesus Christ, we have a lawyer in Jesus who comes and instead of saying you are unrighteous, you know what he says? You're righteous. Jesus Christ takes the title of unrighteous off of us. He becomes sin for us. But God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. He declares us is righteous. But he doesn't just offer justification. He offers redemption as well. What's redemption? It means he sets us free. It brings with it the idea of slavery, that we are slaves. We need freedom. And there's only one person, one individual who can save us, and that is God himself. And so God purchases us, and he buys us with his precious blood, and we are saved. We're saved. We're no longer slaves. We're not slaves to sin. We're no longer in bondage, bondage to sin. And we no longer experience the debtor's prison, which is hell. You don't have to fear that. Why? 
because he wants to save you and free you. So he offers justification, he offers redemption, but then finally he offers propitiation of the three. This was the hardest one for me. I didn't understand it at all. Propitiation. Here's what it means in a nutshell. You're saved from his wrath. You're saved from punishment. That's what it means. In other words, he took the punishment for you. You don't have to worry about punishment because God gives you freedom from that. He took it on him by his wounds. What? We're healed. And so God takes the punishment for us. What I'm trying to say is this, in the gift of God's grace, there are many gifts, many, many gifts. And three of those are justification, redemption, and propitiation. I don't know about you, but when I hear all of that, I think to myself, I want that. I want that give me that. Can I have that, please? And it brings the question, what do I have to do to it, to, to, to get it? What do I have to do? What do I, how do I buy that? How do I purchase that? How do I get that? Well, Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by what? Faith. Faith. God's response is, for you to have this gift, you must respond with faith. With faith. It's not something you can earn or buy or deserve or win. It's based on believing in the one whom he has sent. Believing what? All of it. Believing that humanity isn't righteous like God is. Only he is righteous and we are not. Believing we need him to save us because if we don't have him to save us, we will be destroyed. That's called faith. And when we believe that, God's response is salvation. Salvation. And I got to tell you, if we don't believe, we are missing out. If we don't believe, we are missing out. So what does faith look like? Faith for some of us is going to look like us turning back to the story and believing the story once again. Believing that we need a Savior. Believing that we need a Lord. Believing that we are not the answer. Some of us need to take the first steps. Romans chapter 6 tells us what the first steps of faith are. It says this, Do you not know that all of you who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by, uh, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says it begins here. But it continues on every single day as you respond in faith. So here's the question. Are we going to respond in faith? I got to tell you, I want the gift of God's grace. I want the gift of God's grace. But there is nothing. There is nothing I can do to earn it or deserve it 
or to merit it. All I can do is believe. Believe in the one he has sent. My challenge to you today is to believe. To believe. Believe that you have something that is so precious only because he did it all for you. Maybe that will lead you up here because it's the beginning of that journey for you and you want to put on Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be baptized in him. Or maybe, maybe you just respond because you've already taken those steps and you respond again with faith. But my challenge to you today is this, turn to him in faith. If you need anything from this body, we're here today to serve you. Won't you come now as we stand and as we sing together?